Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming from New York City, and we have a great group of people all coming to you from Washington, D.C., including... Corey Shockey of AEI. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello, David. And we are joined by a new friend uh, who joined us a couple weeks ago, Jeremy Kanandike, who is uh, with the Center for Global Development and was a former senior official in the Obama years, dealing with things like you know, global health, which is on everybody's mind. You may recognize uh, Jeremy's voice from uh, his appearances uh, a lot recently on on, on the TV. Uh, I don't okay. think we can go much further without talking about what's you know going on in this in this big crisis. And maybe Jeremy, if you don't mind, we can turn to you and say, where where do you think we are? Is it is 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 this week? Is today somehow materially different? From a few days ago. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is the initial signs that the curve in parts of the United States is beginning to plateau, um, which is what you'd expect when uh, we've got this mass social distancing and shelter in place uh, approach uh, now implemented across much of the country. Um, as we've seen in Italy and in China and elsewhere, when these shelter in place orders uh, are put into place, it does, it does slow transmission. The big challenge, I think, is how much patience will the public have for this? How much patience will the president have for this? And what is our plan for the next step? Um, it's never been a question whether the, a mass shelter-in-place policy would limit transmission. We know that that limits transmission. The challenge is how do we then take advantage of that, keep transmission suppressed at a low level once the numbers come back down without having to rely on the shelter-in-place tools uh, and the distancing tools in order to do that. And I think that's where I'm very concerned right now is we don't really have, we don't really seem to have an act two being prepared. So act one is the shelter in place. We know that that will do what we know it will do. Um, once it has brought the numbers down, once we have relieved the burden on the healthcare system, we then need to be able to transition to something else. And what that something else looks like is a, uh, a sort of set of tools to suppress the virus, suppress transmission of the virus, in a way that allows us to safely reopen the economy and reopen parts of society. And on that score, you're not really hearing much at a federal level. Some states are beginning to experiment with that. Um, uh, Massachusetts is hiring on a thousand people to support its public health officials in, in tracing and quarantining people in a more targeted way so that they don't have to do that in a broad brush way. But you're not hearing any plan from the federal government on that. And that I think is a big concern because we can't have a sort of patchwork 50 state plus territories uh, diversity of approaches on suppressing the virus. That just becomes the lowest common denominator approach to suppressing the virus, which will fail. We have to have a consistent national approach, but the federal government doesn't seem to be willing to own the issue. It was interesting just moments ago, uh, we, we record this on Monday afternoons, as our listeners know, uh, but moment ago, moments ago, you had a group of U.S. governors led by New York's Andrew Cuomo, uh, but including the governors of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Delaware, all saying they are going to work together on opening plans, that they will modify them state by state as necessary, that they are consulting with experts. Uh, Cuomo says that, that, that he feels there, a plateauing has occurred in New York. But it was kind of interesting because I don't recall any time in the in the recent past, with the possible exception of Hurricane Katrina, where you got a group of governors together saying, we're the, we're the committee for the Northeast. 
effectively or the mid-Atlantic. And, and if the federal government can do it or not, we're, we're going to take care of our own business. Do you see that as a, as a good sign? Well, look, it's better than nothing, but it's not ideal. What, um, if we have different approaches in different parts of the country, um, it's good that there are protections in those areas, but it doesn't protect those areas from bad decisions being made elsewhere. Um, and my favorite example of this is what happened in Florida during spring break, that you know, when many, many states across the country were beginning to implement shelter-in-place orders and bans on large gatherings, the governor of Florida was allowing spring break to go forward and allowing the beaches to stay open. And um, you know, those thousands of college kids who were down there um, during spring break then went back to their communities. Many of them will have taken new, uh, uh, I'm sure took new uh, coronavirus infections with them and, and uh, accelerated the transmission in their own communities. So you, you can't really have even a region by region approach. It, it, is, a, it is a kind of a, a, a poor substitute for a true coherent national approach. But having a coherent national approach means that the federal government has to take ownership of the issue. And, you know, there was some interesting reporting in the Post, and uh, I think it was mainly in the Post a few days ago, that said, that quoted White House officials saying that the president didn't want to do that because then he would own the political responsibility and he'd prefer to shift that onto the governors. Um, to whatever extent that's accurate, um, you know, it, does, it would help to explain why we're seeing the federal government refuse to lead on, on this really, really important next step of the crisis. Okay, so normally at this point, I would turn to Corey, who would then confirm this optimistic take here, because she wears the <laughs> tiara of optimism. Um, but... but... But just for a twist, before I go to Corey, I'm going to go to Rosa, uh, owner of the Thorny Crown of Entropy, um, uh, and say, well, that was the most optimistic report we've had on this, even though it was full of caveats and concerns. Uh, in a while. How are you feeling, Rosa? Oh, well, you know, whenever we are confronted with catastrophe, David, I feel quite invigorated, naturally. Um, um, <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm obviously not a public health expert, um, um, so I defer to those who are, but that, you know, everything is, Jeremy is saying sounds, makes sense to me um, in terms of that being the best we can, we can realistically expect. I think, though, that we don't usually get the best that we could expect. We very often get uh, uh, much less than we ought to be able to expect, particularly with this president in the White House. I don't think that he's going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, oh, goodness me, um, it is absolutely time for me to, you know, make have the experts create a blue ribbon task force to create national level guidelines, and I'm going to take a back seat and give them free reign, and I will completely defer to them. On the contrary, uh, as we've seen, you know, one of uh, President Trump's most recent tweets was retweeting uh, someone suggesting that Fauci should be fired. So, if anything, I think uh, his reaction, quite predictably, when confronted with advice from experts that he finds politically inconvenient is to see if he can possibly fire the experts or, or suppress them in some way. So, so, so I, I don't think that we're going to get the best case scenario. I think if we're really lucky, we won't get the worst case scenario either because we'll, we'll sort of muddle our way through with, with some kind of patchwork approach, which is going to be region by region. Um, and, you know, we will, there will be a lot of suffering. Uh, it's also quite clear. I do think we're, we, we, and we talked about this a little bit last week in our podcast, I don't think the worst has hit yet in, in terms of the economic impact of this. Um, we've seen employment uh, uh, benefits uh, more than at any point since the Great Depression almost 100 years ago, which is stunning enough. But, but I think that we, we haven't yet hit the moment where millions upon millions of American families run out of their reserves, right? So right now, everybody's being a little bit cushioned, you know, that they're, they, you know, hopefully they have a little bit of savings, they're eating what's in their cupboards, they, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think in a few weeks, we hit the point where massive numbers of people run out of cash, run out of food. Um, and unless we are in addition to whatever uh, patchwork mechanisms we have available to keep the virus from just surging right back up again uh, as we begin 
to maybe in some places reduce the uh, stringency of the restrictions on movement, we also start seeing, you know, unless, unless in addition to that, we're also able to get sort of massive emergency food aid, et cetera, to what is going to be millions of Americans, we're also, I think, not only are we gonna just see mass, mass suffering, but we will also see mass non-compliance with stay-at-home orders because people simply won't be able to. You know, the, the, the level of economic desperation is going to drive people out if we can't find some kind of government-sponsored way to get them assistance so that they can stay in their homes. Um, and we're gonna have to confront that. And I don't, I don't think that we are prepared for that on any level. You know, what happens when people are just like, I can't do this anymore. You know, we've already seen in some jurisdictions, although crime overall in most big cities is somewhat down as a result of this crisis because people are simply staying home. Uh, many cities are already reporting an uptick on things like robberies of convenience stores with people stealing necessities um, because they're running out of money. And we're gonna see more and more of that. We're gonna see more and more enforcement problems as people are driven out by total desperation. We're also, I think the, the degree to which the coronavirus is beginning to hit those essential workers, whether they be the grocery store employees, the Amazon warehouse employees, the home health aides and so on. I think we haven't really yet seen the, 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 the crest of the wave there and that's going to be pretty devastating as well. Well, Corey, you know, as expected, Rosa put on her Doc Martens and stomped <laughs> all over any incipient optimism that was there. But, you know, you could still, you pull the lens back a little bit. Macron came on the television today, talked a little bit about, um, you know, the lockdown measures being in place through May 11th, but then implying that they would loosen a little after that. Uh, uh, Wuhan has been reopened. There are reports of some other outbreaks in China, but there is beginning to be some kind of normal travel within China. Places like Taiwan and and Singapore have made a little bit of progress. Um, I'm I'm obviously focusing more on the positive side here than the negative. Um, but I'm just wondering, what's your reaction to the to this moment? So um, I was reading Hilary Mantel's uh, concluding novel of Thomas Cromwell's life, and I actually had to put it aside because the undercurrent of dread as Cromwell makes the decisions that will lead to his fall from influence with Henry VIII, it felt too... Uh, agonizing in this weird moment and I I realized that what for me the moment is such a failure of governance I try and imagine a national catastrophe in which we had this significant uh, failure of leadership and I struggled to um, you know the United States has been incredibly fortunate throughout our history that in the times of enormous need, leaders have moved to the fore. Washington, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, busting the trusts. And um, so for comfort, I have gone back and watched the Ken Burns uh, PBS documentary on the Roosevelts. And, and it's only reinforcing everything Jeremy outlined, which is the failure of federal leadership is making this more deadly, more costly, so much more damaging than it needs to be. I'm grateful for governors stepping to the fore, and I think they will be the bulwark between what Rosa outlined as our potential future um, and the actuality and governors can shame Congress into action. But it's really genuinely shocking to me that an American presidency endowed with so many powers of, and authorities to act in a crisis, President Trump's not using any of them, even though he and his men tried to find so many slippery ways to expand federal authority for the things they actually care about, like the travel ban and border control. 
I do want to turn to Ed, but you know, we do these things on Zoom now, so I can see everybody. And Jeremy is gesticulating wildly, I think, in favor of what Corey is saying. Yeah, well, you know, it's extraordinary. You have, you have a, an attorney general here who, probably more than anyone else, has been trying to advance uh, an imperial presidency in terms of the legal authorities of the president and the role of the president. Um, you know, the role of the president as this unquestioned uh, national figure who, who has broad authority to take ownership of anything and do whatever he wants until there is the political risk of a coronavirus outbreak where um, uh, things are failing. And then suddenly uh, it's all about federalism. It's all about the governors and the states and the president won't take on the political risk or the leadership. And um, yeah, it is it is just this extraordinary, it's this, this sort of neck snapping whiplash almost in terms of the role of the president and the authorities of the president. Um, suddenly the governors are the one who, ones who are important and, and Congress is, it's Congress's fault and it's the governor's fault and you know, anyone but the president's fault. You, know, you can't say the president has broad authority and broad responsibility and is the man in charge right up until the moment where there's political risk in, in taking ownership of an issue. And it is astounding. I mean, I, 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 like Corey, I, I struggle to think of a president in recent history who, when faced with a national crisis this severe, would say, not it, and throw the hot potato somewhere else. It's just, well, it's just let, me, let, me turn to, let me turn to Ed and pick up on this, and I would never dream of contradicting Corey, ever. She's generally right, always, you know, always right. Um, but, that, but as it happens, I can I have, see that sly smile since we're on video, David. Exactly. Well, as it happens, I have here sent to me by a friend of mine um, a, an excerpt from Robert Caro's "The Path to Power," and he 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 quotes. There's a whole section here. I'm not going to quote the whole thing. I'll read to you three or four lines of it, uh, in which Herbert Hoover says in December 1929. Conditions are fundamentally sound. And then in March 1930, he said, the worst will be over in 60 days. And in May, he predicted that the economy would be back to normal in the autumn. And in June, in the midst of another market plunge, he told the delegation which called on the White House to plead for public works project, gentlemen, you have come 60 days too late. The depression is over. And then in his De December 2nd, 1930 message to Congress, he said, the fundamental strength of the economy is unimpaired. He sounds just like Trump. And then finally, and I won't keep after this, but finally he's, he was asked, why then are so many unemployed men selling apples on street corners? And Hoover said, sounding like Trump or Larry Kudlow, many people have left their jobs for the more profitable one of selling apples. You know, so this is this well is, done. So this is an American president who got it exactly as wrong as Donald Trump did in exactly the same ways in 1929 and 1930. Uh, and by the way, he 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 continued with this straight through 1932. Um, uh, and later, you know, was quoted saying, "Nobody is actually starving. The hobos, for example, are better fed than they have ever been. One hobo in New York got ten meals in one day." Hey, listeners! If you haven't already, you might want to check out and subscribe to Eurasia Group Foundation's new podcast, None of the Above. It offers new ideas and answers to America's most pressing foreign policy questions. Increasingly, as you know, everyday American voters feel that their preferences are not accurately reflected in Washington. They find themselves dissatisfied with the status quo. None of the above is designed to offer something different. The host, Mark Hanna, interviews global thinkers, journalists, and activists on the issues we care most about. You'll hear in-depth conversations with foreign policy luminaries like our friend Stephen Wald, as well as some less usual suspects like uh, Cal Penn or Andrew Basovich. None of the above is produced by the Eurasia Group Foundation, a nonprofit founded by Ian Bremmer and dedicated to helping people make meaning out of the impact that geopolitics has on their lives and bringing non-traditional voices into the national conversation about foreign policy and national security. So uh, give a listen to None of the Above, uh, a very interesting new podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you listen. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we, we've been here before. We have had bad leaders who've missed the call, Ed. Um, and as, as, I, as I think Rosa rightly points out, we may soon forget the public health crisis underlying this. If you have 47 million people unemployed in a country where 40% of the people have $400 in savings, um, most of the people would be bankrupted by a trip to the doctor. Um, and, and, and that's exactly where we're going. Most people have health care that's tied to their employment. Yeah, I was just looking as we were talking at the um, composition of uh, President Trump's Council to Reopen America has been released, and it includes Mark Meadows, uh, uh, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, uh, Larry Kudlow, Robert Lighthizer, Wilbur Ross, and Steve Mnuchin. Of those, maybe Lighthizer, I would accept, but the rest I wouldn't trust to form a committee to run a block party in my neighborhood. Um, they, they are um, exactly the kind of Hooverian um, figures in terms of just mouthing blind optimism. Um, and in a couple of cases, Ivanka and Jared's, um, are really sort of lethally empowered and and um, I think unaware of their own limitations. Uh, you, you might recall um, the National Association of Manufacturers awarded Ivanka the annual Hamilton Prize in February, two weeks before coronavirus really, really started to take off in, in February for her contributions to American manufacturing. So we've got this this kind of Brains Trust. By the way, you may think it's the Alexander Hamilton Prize. It's actually the George Hamilton Prize. Oh, is it? Oh, it's sorry. Sam, I'm no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just oh, sorry. Kidding. George Hamilton has in the Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm being slow. Sorry. Yeah. I thought I thought I was secure. I, I've just seen trying to keep it a little lighter. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm an expert in Hamilton. I've, I've, I've seen the musical. Um, I'm also, as a brilliant, a brilliant um, um, trope on YouTube, um, like the rest of us, well, not Jeremy, um, who's, I think, authentic. Um, I, I have a PhD in armchair epidemiology from the University of Wikipedia. So we can talk about diseases and such, if you, if you like. Um, but economics, <laughs> economics, um, the economics of this council is really quite terrifying. And there isn't a scientist on it. That's what's most striking. There isn't a scientist on the Council for Reopen America. Uh, and well, Jared, clearly, Jared has read a bunch of books. Jared's, Jared's read the, history, the first three pages of the History of Time, um, which is one more page than me. Um, but there isn't a scientist there. This whole debate is about balancing our interests and trade-offs um, between the economy uh, and uh, public health. And you've got a bunch of quack economists or just non-quack quite non-specialists. Um, so that's a cause for um, extreme disturbance. I don't think that the very impressive collection of um, states that you mentioned that have got together um, is enough to substitute for a federal government that's missing in action. Um, and that's what worries me. It's certainly better than the states not getting together and not coordinating. But you do need, you do need federal leadership. And for reasons others have set out, Trump has decided that that's politically um, not in his interests. Yeah, so that's why um, I, I think we should start a secession movement right here. May may make some of you uncomfortable, but I, you know, we could. I think if you break off the East Coast of the U.S. and the West Coast and sort of the northern Midwestern states and Canada, and we call it New Canadonia. So and it's the, you know, and then it's like they're like-minded, the very strong economy, and and you know. What about my Wyoming bunker? Can it be part of this? Yeah, no, it's in the north. So okay. it and find. I feel like you're overstating the commonalities between my native land of California and lots of other places, David. I mean, I'm from Michigan, so let's uh, let's keep them in the mix if we yeah, can. Yeah, no, Michigan. Are we going to have to compost in our new country? Will that be mandatory? Well, California is part of it, yes, right, Corey? Oh, Here we are back to the Articles of Convention and the Constitutional Conference all over again. <laughs> yeah, I am not ready. Okay. But can London, could London join and small portions of West Sussex? 
<laughs> I see some logistical difficulties emerging. Well, but we live in a new era and everybody is wired together virtually. So I don't know that that's necessarily true. Well, look, let, let, me, let me move this question on. We've got about 15, 20 minutes here and I'd like to go to each one of you and ask a question that's, that, that is the one that comes up most frequently in my conversations, which like most people, are, are Zoom parties, you know, like we had a Zoom birthday party for our dog yesterday, 20 people from around the world par- participated. Um, and, uh, but when you talk to people, they're like, this is gonna change the world. This is an epoch making event. This is one of those things like uh, some of the other big transitions that have occurred in people's lives, whether it's a world war, a great depression or whatever that change the way you look at the world and change the way the world operates. Which begs the question, how? So Jeremy, uh, let me go to you first. It's a, it's a big question. You don't have to have the answer to all aspects of it, but just pick one or two things where you just think it's never gonna be the same after this. It's a great question. It's a hard one to answer on the spur of the moment. Um, I was hoping you'd pick somebody else first, but I'll take a stab at it. Um, I think first, Hopefully, this reminds us of the importance of public health. Um, you know, we have let, both at a global level and a national level, let public health really deteriorate. Um, we are heavily overinvested in relative terms in individual treatment, in medical treatment in this country. Um, we have let he- public health wither on the vine, and you know now we see that kind of you know for want of for want of uh, a few hundred billion dollars. Uh, of investments in public health over the years, we're now facing trillions upon trillions of dollars of damage to our economy. Um, so there's a pretty good return on investment of those investments that we have not been making. And I think we need to start making them. Um, but I think it, it, there's a lesson there at a more macro level as well, which is that um, you know our our economy in the U.S. relative to how other economies are weathering this is doing much much worse. Um, you know there was a great piece in the New York Times by um, Zuckman and Saez a couple of days ago that talked about how, you know, here, in order to get relief, people have to first lose their jobs and go on unemployment and then get relief for unemployment. Other countries are putting money direct into companies so that jobs are retained. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have a social safety, an approach to social safety nets in this country that is not suited to this kind of a shock. And I think a lot of the well, I, I don't know how that's all going to play out politically. I can't totally anticipate that, but I think you're going to have a lot of people who are going to be realizing just how fragile those safety nets are, not just, you know, not just for the, the kind of traditionally marginalized parts of our society, but really for everyone. And I, want, you know, I wonder if that isn't going to drive change around um, you know, healthcare, but also around more core economic issues over time. Yeah, by the way, you know, when I was on the board of the Bloomberg uh, school of public health for a number of years. One of the statistics that they would regularly roll out was that the average American male lived to be 46 years old in the year 1900. Uh, today, the average life expectancy is 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 around 80. Right. 94% of the extension of the life expectancy of the average American male or uh, of life expectancy in the U.S has come from public health, not from vaccines, not from scientific breakthroughs, but from things like good hygiene, uh, uh, closed sewage systems, other things that were innovations that came on the public health side of things. Most of the gains in the quality of our lives, health lives, have come from the public health side of the ledger, not the big breakthroughs. Um, And... Mm -hmm. If you were watching this on Zoom, you would hear, see Jeremy nodding in concurrence. Um, Rosa, the the <laughs> I can see you. You're 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 paying attention here. So the, the same question to you, and that is, um, what's changed? What do you think will never be the same? So I, if I had to lay out two alternative futures, um, one of them positive, one of them negative. Um, the, the positive future, I mean, so, so, so you were quoting uh, Herbert Hoover earlier. Um, obviously, the Great Depression led to the New Deal. 
um, and led to a radical change in both the uh, sort of political bargain in the United States on a, on a national level, the bargain in terms of powers between the states and the federal government, a massive expansion of federal power, um, uh, a, but also a massive shift in how Americans understood the role of government more generally, and that lasted for many decades before it began to fall apart uh, in the nineteen in the in the nineteen eighties. Um, and so, one sort of positive view of what could happen in the future is that the the same the same forces that already led to a resurgence of interest in democratic socialism that drove the campaigns of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, et cetera. Um, so we, we already had these, uh, you know, the, the economic desperation, the widening income inequality in the United States, the high levels of educational debt, the, the healthcare crisis, all of those things were there already. So the positive version is that this uh, crisis, which, which, you know, is plunging millions into unemployment and, and depending how long it endures may cause just a truly massive level of suffering, um, does lead to a, you know, new social contract with a shared understanding that there has to be much more, a much more active role of, of government in providing social services, in taking action to reduce e economic inequality and so on, and that we get people have more faith in government, which somehow, you know, this patchwork group of governors manages to guide us out of here. Trump is voted out in the next election and goes off with his tail between his legs. Uh, we get, we get, you know, a Biden presidency which begins to put things back together and we get sort of massive level job creation programs on the scale of the, the New Deal types of efforts and that, that we enter a sort of a new era in which that is no longer anathema as it has been in the past 15, 20, 30 years, um, but is instead widely accepted and we become a kind of a social democratic country. Um, that's, that's one vision of the future. Um, the other vision of the future, um, I think, is, is obviously much, much darker, and that is one in which the massive suffering that this crisis will cause the, leads to a total lack of faith in government. Uh, Trump either wins again legitimately or uses the chaos and the questions that have arisen around the ability to hold elections, is it safe, you know, the we're planting seeds of doubt about whether you can have a valid mail-in ballot election, et cetera. So somehow or other, Trump manages to stay in power, uh, that you get widespread social unrest in this country arising out of economic desperation. You know, the combination of deaths from the virus itself plus death and suffering as a result of the sheer economic misery and want that comes through, that you get civil, civil violence, that you either get a sort of total breakdown and fragmentation of governance altogether in this country, or, and, and maybe you get both of these at the same time, uh, you get an increasingly authoritarian actions, both at the federal level and at the level of many, but not all states, uh, with increasingly draconian efforts to restore order, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you get a very, very dark and chaotic future in which the U.S. essentially descends into uh, semi-failed state status. And which of those we will get, I think at this point, it's kind of a coin toss. Um, well, that's concerning. Corey, what do you think has changed that will never go back to being the same? Beyond the fact that I think all of us are more comfortable with eating canned goods that are slightly past their ex expiry date. Oh, what a disgusting thought, David. I absolutely did not need that visual. That's why I'm here. Um, so two things, but, but I, I But I have found, by the way, eight-year-old tuna is fine. So uh, go, go uh, on. So first thing I think is uh, never going back. I think we may finally break the supremacy of the military among our national tools. Because, and we are likely to see as a consequence, um, significant sustained downward pressure on defense spending in order to free up resources for other elements of national power 
that this pandemic has demonstrated are an even greater threat to us than the foreign policy crises that drive uh, defense spending. The second, much smaller, but to me quite significant thing that I hope uh, is changing forever is that the, we see only the vestigial use of that industrial age tool, the office. And that instead we stop grading people on their physical presence in an enclosed space as a measure of doing their job and instead come up with more useful metrics of their contribution to our professional ball clubs so that I can do my job from the sun deck in perpetuity. Well, that's where we're going. That's where Zoom gets you on the sun deck, just, you know, just zooming into shows wherever you go. Um, and I, I do want to note that while we've been going and doing this show, because you announced the officials on the council to reopen America, I've been following the Twitterverse reaction to this. And it has been the most nonstop set of shocked insults that I've ever seen in my life. It is like the, you know, I've, you know, it's like, oh my God, we're dead. The world is going to end because this group of Mark Meadows and Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner and Steve Mnuchin and Larry Kudlow and Robert Lighthizer and Wilbur Ross is, is if you were dreaming up the worst people to be in charge of the economy. I mean, admittedly, many of these people have senior jobs in the economy. You it's the, the committee to fuck the world, basically. Yeah, but certainly the committee to fuck up America, right? <laughs> I mean, well, and, and it, even if you don't believe that, it is certainly the committee to fuck the 99%. I mean, 1% of the United States will come out of this a little bit better. Um, but these people have never met them. Anyway, um, what's changed that is never going to go back to being the same? Um, I think that with good and bad consequences, the power of the state is increasing uh, all over the world. The consequences, if following up on what almost everybody said, um, you get stronger social protections, that you get a, a Biden era New Deal. Um, and it's hard to think of Biden as, as um, Franklin Roosevelt, but then nobody thought of Franklin Roosevelt as Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. Um, so it, in, that, in that respect, better social protections, better public health, um, a stronger sense of solidarity and the linkage between people, um, which would produce, as Rosa put it, a, a more social democratic America, which I think is desperately needed. Um, but the pandemic is also um, spreading the contagion of authoritarianism. And you've got a lot of um, strong men around the world using it as a cloak to advance uh, to suspend various rights, whatever remained of them, and to um, extinguish the freedom of the media. I think everybody's been quoting that, um, that possibly apocryphal Lenin quote that you wait for decade, decades and nothing happens, and then in weeks, decades happen. Um, and I think what, what we're seeing in countries like India is an extinguishing of, uh, of freedom that would ordinarily have taken two, three years to do, as happened in the last few weeks, and you're seeing that in many countries. Um, so a stronger state. I think the second um, element I would point to is the growth of the tech companies and big data. Um, they are happening to be growing. You know, if you look across the sectors in the last few weeks, they've been shrinking 30, 50, 70%. The tech industry has actually been doing very well out of this, from Amazon to Google to Zoom. Um, they've also done very well, ironically, out of the $2.2 trillion stimulus uh, rescue package, whatever you call it. They've been very good at using that to suspend regulations, to lobby for the suspension of regulations that were going to happen in terms of privacy, to argue for um, fewer limits on um, data privacy, um, so that surveillance and contact tracing, et cetera, could be better enabled. Um, and um, to argue for various uh, um, pork barrel um, uh, benefits that really they shouldn't be getting because they're not in trouble. Um, but I've no doubt that when you see the share of the economy taken up by 
big tech a year from now is going to be considerably larger than where it would have been if you'd follow the lines pre-coronavirus. And I don't think that's good for freedom. I think surveillance is going to be much more deeply entrenched, both public and private and public-private. Um, and um, I think that you're going to be faced with far more polit concentrated political power from Silicon Valley, which is going to pose a, a huge problem um, for us. You know, I think that's a very prescient, smart observation that carries with it the corollary that big tech knows that it will be a top agenda item for Democrats to regulate big tech. And therefore, you will find increasingly, as we have already, big tech on the side of Trump whether they may have reservations or not, simply because they think he will let them get away with more, uh, despite his hatred for Jeff Bezos and and so forth, and that you know you know you saw you know Facebook talking about sponsoring the GOP convention and so forth. You, you, we're 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 headed in a in a direction that is completely the antithesis of what we thought during the Clinton administration was going to happen with big tech as a democratizing, liberalizing force in society. Um, and now we've been seeing that for a while, but I think you make a really good point here. We've just got a couple minutes left, and Jeremy, I'd like to turn to you for uh, a, a brief comment, and, and, and that is the yes, but comment here. Uh, we've talked a little bit about you know, where there's some optimistic trends. Uh, on our podcast that we did, uh, late last week, um, and and we we, were, we had on it um, uh, Lori Garrett. Uh, we also had Senator Murphy. If you haven't listened to it, I encourage people to listen to it. But we had a long talk about some of the X factors that aren't getting discussed as much, like a second wave, like the fact that you have this disease catching on in Africa and South America as they enter into their winter, their flu seasons, uh, that these are societies that don't have a lot of the ability to contain or manage things uh, that, that, that we do, that this will keep this virus alive, and that the likelihood of a second wave come November, come December, uh, that comes back to us is high. And then that is compounded by the fact that uh, in Korea, in China, and a couple of other places, we've started to see some signs that the disease seems to have recurred in people who've had it, and that it may be a very hard disease to develop a vaccine to, given its specific nature and the inability of the body to develop a very targeted antibody towards it. All those things seem very concerning to me. Do they concern you? Are there other factors like this that we ought to keep you know, in sight if we're going to plan clearly? Yeah, I think on the... Um on the, the chance of reinfection, I think the jury is still out. Um, you know, there have been a few small studies that um, have raised that prospect. The, the, I am not a virologist, but the smart virologists that I follow on Twitter um, are, have, have not put too much stock in those studies so far. So hope, And it would be pretty unusual for a virus um, to have a, a significant chance of immediate reinfection after you, once you've just recovered or soon after you've recovered. So there, there, there's likely going to be some lingering immunity. We don't know how long that will last. Um, I think my, you know, my biggest, my biggest concerns right now are, you know, in the immediate, in kind of the immediate to medium term, uh, we don't yet have, a, a the, the tools underway in this country to be able to safely lift the shelter in place orders. Um, and we're not on track to get them there. And I think we won't be able to without federal leadership, but even once we, you know, even if, when, and if we do get those things in place. Um, even if we have to stay in the shelter in place for a few months extra because that's taking longer than it than it needed to, you know, we're still going to be in a state of um, kind of a, a state of vigilance on this for the next two to three years. And I don't I don't think people fully I don't think people fully priced in the idea that we will not have a return to normal either in the U.S. or in the world for probably a two to three year period. Um, the only way we get fully out of this is by some form of herd immunity. And you either get to herd immunity by totally failing to contain it and having it totally rip through your society, which is obviously 
um, not what we're what not what we want because it kills a lot of people, or you get to herd immunity by suppressing spread until there's a vaccine. Um, and depending on how transmissible this this is, whether it's a reproductive rate of two or three, um, you need to get either 50 to 66 percent of the population. Uh, immune to the disease, either by having had it or having been vaccinated, before you can say that you know we can start, we can we can be back to normal. So we're in for a pretty long haul there, and during that whole period, we have to be vigilant because it will get reintroduced, and that's what we're seeing in China and South Korea. The biggest risk they face now is not actually local spread; it's it's reintroductions through travel. Uh, and China just had a large number of cases come in on one single flight from Russia which then I think gets to the next point you raised, which is how is this going to play out in the rest of the world? There are countries that haven't seen many cases yet that are now beginning to. I'm very, very nervous about Russia because it combines the, uh, the sort of um, desire to control and shape a positive narrative with um, the, the kind of state incompetence to actually manage the crisis. Uh, but the developing world is going to be greatly at risk too. And I think the, the conditions we've seen in Guayaquil, Ecuador, where people have been dying so fast they literally cannot be collected by the morgue uh, may be a preview of what uh, what other countries in the developing world are about to experience so yeah there are a lot of there are a lot of shoes yet to drop on this on this pandemic and a lot to still be nervous about. Um, yeah and it's a useful point because this is a a disease in a global era. And that's something that, you know, I mean, Donald Trump tr shut off some flights from China, others came through. And then we've discovered that a lot of the cases came from Europe. Uh, Ed, I saw you make a gesture. Did, were you making a gesture that you wanted to say something? Or um, were you doing exercises, isometric exercises? Uh, yeah, this was just my, uh, my weekly workout. Uh, it's over. It's about a thirty-second exercise. Yeah, uh, but I, I, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy to answer, answer any questions about my weekly routine, or indeed. Any yeah. Well, that was what I was going to do. I would like everybody. We have fifty. You know, we have a minute left. I'd like everybody in fifteen seconds to give our deep state listeners, who, by the way, are the best people out there. Indeed. The best nerds anywhere. The best nerds, and one of whom glamorous individuals. I don't, I don't know if you, you know this, but yesterday we got a, an email from one of our deep state listeners um, named Melody, who lives in British Columbia. And she said that she loves us all so much that she's made masks for us. And she wanted <laughs> to know God. where to send them. So that That's we, lovely. You know, then I thought that was, that was really sweet. Um, so everybody's coping with how do you live with this? And, um, you know, I will go and give each one of you 15 seconds for the tip that is enabling you to maintain your sanity um, through this. And I'll start with you, Rosa, since you seem to have such a firm grip on your sanity. Well, it, it, it helps to be a, a, a hermit to start with. And then this, you know, stay at home order is really no trouble at all. It gives me an excuse to not go out, which I hadn't previously had. So you know, being a weird introverted hermit um, really is my recommendation for how people help people. <laughs> well, I think a lot of our listeners may fall into that category. Um, deep state nerds being who they are and that they have no friends and just sit at home drinking box wine. What is, what's your tip, Corey? <laughs> um, mine is don't, so I like Rosa am ideally suited for being cloistered. And I'm basically serene and contented as long as I can sneak out to run um, once during the day. My tip is a super unhelpful one, which is don't be quarantined with somebody you don't get along with. Because it's a great joy to be cloistered with my sweet sister. Um, and I wish for everyone else that pleasure. To be cloistered with your sister? To be quarantined with somebody they like, they learn from, they're inspired by, they're worried to take care of. Good. Ed? Uh, since you mentioned Melody, um, who's, who's uh, a wonderful person, and I'd love to wear the mask she's making, um, I should mention... Um, a 14-year-old who listens to Deep State Radio every episode, a guy called George Semenides, who's um, 
a, a son of a friend of mine lives in Chicago, a Greek American, and he's a fanatic. Um, uh, listening to DSR and yay, and he like I don't well, Corey's, know. Corey's sister else. is going to go live with him first. Now, now we've worked that out. Yes, and I should mention George because he's a, a, a wonderfully precocious and intelligent um, young man. Um, what was the question again? Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with something oh, something from man. left field. It was something from left field. It was like, how are you surviving? Like you're you're one oh, for surviving. Uh, yeah. Yeah, to, to be quarantined with my wife, my stepson, and my daughter is actually blissful. Oh, that's very nice. Jeremy? Uh, I have I have been a baker for a number of years now, so I am... Oh, you're am, the one who bought up all the flour. I, I am struggling. We are struggling to find flour. I've started, I've taken to ordering it online now to get the good stuff because it's not available anymore. Um, but so I'm baking a lot of bread and the family's eating a lot of bread. Uh, so between that and like Corey, I also try to get some runs and some uh, some bike rides in, and that kind of helps to maintain the sanity. Yeah, I agree. I have to say we have, we're very fortunate to have a home gym here that's pretty well equipped, and so the ability to go and work out while watching, you know, long, you know, binge watching the the, the shows that I've missed has helped has has helped with this a lot. But so have you guys. So is Deep State Radio. Every couple of days, getting smart insights to all of this, having my nerves frayed and calmed at the same time, uh, hearing your great stories, um, thinking of Corey on the deck, you know, in a you know hailstorm, but she's out there tanning <laughs> on, on, in the midst of the, the worst of Washington weather. It, no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear, David. Exactly, exactly. And that's the kind of attitude that'll get us all through this. Um, so, everybody, uh, we've actually got two episodes coming out today because we have this episode, and we also did a special episode with our friend uh, David Sanger and one of his colleagues who helped write this big piece over the weekend on how the Trump administration essentially missed the boat on all the warnings that they were getting. Uh, Michael Shear, who's a White House correspondent there. And so we just did a deep dive on that piece. Uh, so that's a separate episode and we will go with our Thursday episode and have more uh, insights into this current crisis in its manifold manifestations. Uh, so join us for that, go to the dsrnetwork.com, find more things that we've got up there, columns and other kinds of bits and pieces. Um, and we will talk yeah, to you. We should start selling special deep state radio quarantine swag. It's quarantine swag. You like sure masks? <laughs> masks. <laughs> masks. Special issue box wine. Yes. Box wine. <laughs> maybe Melody can make uh, mass quantities of deep state radio masks. A, yeah, no, I think those could probably do extremely well. Well, we will get our swag team. You don't know this, Jeremy, but we have a massive team <laughs> of swag specialists who are in a converted Minuteman missile silo in Wyoming who do this stuff around the clock for us. So uh, we will turn to them. But to everybody else, we invite you to join us again soon. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Uh, thanks to all the listeners. And please, Go out of your way to try to stay safe and healthy out there. Bye-bye.